So welcome to the show, Roby. Uh, how are you doing today? Yeah, really well. Good to, good to be here at last, Matt. Your, your listeners should know that you have made heroic attempts to actually get me in front of the camera after screwing up last time. <laughs> no, it's no problem at all. I, I really enjoy your podcast. We're going to talk a bit about that. Um, first up, I'd like to ask folks, um, what's on your hobby table at the moment? Uh, uh, my hobby table is a bit of a notorious disaster zone. Uh, so I can see a lot of things. But the thing I will bring out to people that might be of interest is I have some miniatures on my bench from a company called Enemy Spotted Studios. And the reason I raise them is because they have literally just today, and, and I'm totally unaffiliated, I, by the way, I have no, no connection to them um, other than liking what they do. They've launched a Kickstarter today for a game called Kill Wager, which is a, an ultra-modern to near-future sci-fi skirmish war game. Uh, and they are launching that, and they're launching it as a physical product, but it's also interesting that it's a fully digital product in that its miniatures are available as STLs, as digital products, as well as being physical ones. I got my hands on some physical ones. Um, they are they are very, very pretty miniatures. They're, they're kind of 32 mil plus, I would say. They're not as tall as Star Wars Legion by any means, but they're they're taller than your average Imperial Guardsman by by quite a margin. Um, so I'd say they were sort of in in the region of thirty four to thirty five mil, but they are beautiful beautiful miniatures. And if somebody's into you know just over the horizon, what are what are infantry soldiers going to look like? What are special forces going to be using in terms of equipment? These guys are, are really sort of imagining into that space. Uh, I can't speak to, to how good Kill Wager is, but if they've put the same attention to detail into the game as they have into the miniatures, then it's definitely worth checking out. Cool, yeah. I mean, how? Because you're somebody who like works in the industry and uh, you create content as well. You do your podcast and stuff like that. So, how much time do you actually get for the painting and the gaming side of things? Um, it, it comes in waves. So generally speaking, I'll often find myself spending a week or two doing nothing but hobby stuff. Um, usually when I've run up against some kind of uh, writer's block in, in my game writing, I'll often put that aside because I, I, I write and I try to publish my rules. And, and we might come to this challenge later in the interview, but I try to publish my rules looking as good as they possibly can. Even though I'm just a, a solo independent, I want my rule books to look as good as I can possibly make them. So I try to fill them with as much photography of miniatures and scenery and such like as I can. And the cheapest and most practical way to do that is to do it all myself. So so occasionally when I'm running up on the writer's block, I go, right, you know, I'm, I'm just not feeling this at the moment. I'll just put it all aside turn to the desk and I can plough through painting some minis knowing that they are going to have a place in a rule book at some point because I, I write so many different diverse sets of rules that pretty much anything on my table could eventually end up in a rule book. So it's, it's time well spent. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to ask you was what factors actually turn a, a war game player into a rules writer, into somebody who is going to go into this and try and run a business. Like, what, uh, other, what than, point, other than you masochism, mean? you mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think, and I, I've had a, a real opportunity through my own podcast to speak to some great game designers, names that will be both 
familiar to, to your audience, people like Gav Thorpe, Jake, Jake Thornton, you've probably heard of, uh, and people that they may not have, um, someone like Ivan Sorensen, who's the author of Five Class X from Home, which is a new, new release from Modifius Entertainment, although it's, it's, it's been kicking around for a while. Um, and you notice that there tend to be some common themes amongst gamers who end up writing rules. And one of those things, one of those themes is we're not that great at playing the games. Um, in that we enjoy miniatures games and we love the experience of playing miniatures games, but we win surprisingly infrequently. Uh, perhaps because, you know, we're, we're more interested and invested in the mechanics of the process of the game than we are in trying to find the edges of the game to exploit for victory. Um, so, so that's something which I've certainly noticed is that there is a tendency amongst game writers to themselves not be very good at playing. One notable exception, I should say, is, is Alessio Cavatore, who was an outstanding Warhammer player uh, before he actually turned to the dark side and became a writer as well. <laughs> um, yeah, like, so t- tell us a wee bit about, like, the games that you're uh, known for, the games that you work on at the moment and have out there for, for sale to the public. I am best known for a game which has now become a small series of games called Horizon Wars. Uh, so I wrote Horizon Wars back in, well, I, I kind of originally wrote Horizon Wars around 2010, um, but it was a long process until it was formally published in the form now known as Horizon Wars by Osprey Games in 2016. Um, and, you know, that was that was a big deal for me, getting picked up by a publisher, and that did represent my sort of... Uh, my credibility as a writer taking several steps forwards. Uh, but I, it, it definitely wasn't um, a life-changing experience in the sense that, that I could give up the day job and, and focus on writing rules by any means. Uh, that was to come come later. Um, and that that came about less from the fact that I thought I could make a living than the fact that I had some... I had a fortunate combination of circumstances. Um, I, I had stepped away from a full-time permanent role. Um, I had started doing short-term contracts and consulting, and then the pandemic came along. And even, even before the pandemic started, or, or well, after it had started, but before lockdown first gripped the UK, uh, I had decided to take time off from consulting to focus on, on writing and publishing rules to see how well I could do. And at that point, I decided to release a set of rules that I had been working on for some time, which was a follow-up to Horizon Wars called Horizon Wars Zero Dark. Now, the original Horizon Wars rules was a basically a six mil battle game. So it was six mil sci-fi. So it was war mechs and tanks and infantry and aircraft and all in the sort of the... If, if Warhammer players will be familiar with things like Epic 40K. Others might be familiar with Battletech. It was in that kind of genre and region that it was, it was aiming. Um, but I wrote a fairly lengthy, albeit somewhat off-the-cuff setting for that game. Um, primarily because I think I think Phil Smith at Osprey asked me to, or possibly I suggested that it might be a good idea, and he agreed. 
So, so I wrote that quite hurriedly. Um, but I, it was a reasonably interesting setting, and it had some interesting threads in it that I wanted to tug at uh, in a bit more detail. So I wrote Zero Dark as a follow-up that is there's broadly the same mechanics as Horizon Wars, but reapplied to a 28-mil skirmish game. Um, and, and that was a more special forces-focused skirmish game set in a, with a little bit more focus. Horizon Wars had like a 500-year timeline, uh, and this was a focus in, a, in a, like a 25-year window within that timeline, um, which explored some, some mysteries and questions that I had left intentionally unanswered in the original book. Um, and, and to be honest, didn't actually particularly answer them, but it certainly gave those mysteries a bit more, bit more attention. And it's that they're both both Horizon Wars books are in fact all Horizon Wars books I should say are designed to be uh, miniatures agnostic, as they say. So you should be able to use whatever miniatures you've got handy and throw them in. But the settings are there to entertain and inform and guide players, but but they're absolutely not carved in stone by any means. And people can can use those games to to play their own settings or settings that are more familiar to them or or ones that perhaps they love but don't have their own game, or even ones that do have a game and you, you don't like it very much. Um, and then this year, I so I published Zero Dark in 2020. Uh, I followed that up with a supplement for Zero Dark towards the end of 2020, which is called Operation Nemesis. And then this year, I published what's effectively the third Horizon Wars game, which is Horizon Wars Infinite Dark, which is a spaceship combat game so again similar mechanics but reapplied to spaceship combat and those are the, the my three main games at the moment but there's there's some more stuff coming down the pipe which which we might get to talk about later sure yeah with the miniature agnostic games as we call them so you've created worlds you've you've created stories for the the, the player to go and play in with their own miniatures some miniature agnostic games uh that I play, we've got a song of blades and heroes and yeah, open combat. I like yeah. them both, and they take that approach of um, you know go and play in whatever world you want, whether that is a, a Warhammer world or your own made up world or whatever. Um, do you find that in your experience, the more miniature agnostic games provide you with the loose outline of a universe, or do they more do the thing of just you know have at it? Here's the rules, uh, make the world. It's it's really depends on what you're pointing out when you ask the question. So some games provide, most miniatures agnostic games provide at least the vaguest outline of a setting. Um, a few, Open Combat is a good example, A Song of Blades and Heroes, make, make no effort to provide a setting for their game whatsoever. Um, I think Horizon Wars does more than many miniatures agnostic games in terms of providing a setting. Um, that, that wasn't like a commercial decision that I made directly. It was partly informed by the fact that I am a many, many times failed author in terms of writing fiction. So I've got many, many stories in my head that I've tried to write and have failed over and over again. So, so this was like a, uh, like a substitute novel attempt for me to be able to write the setting without having to worry about writing an actual, you know, the characters and and a, and a person-driven plot and stuff. Um, but the, but there was also demands mildly 
Um, so people who were playing Horizon Wars and who were interested in seeing what I had done, you know, did did come to me and say, we'd love to see more of this world and go into more detail and find out more about it. So I, I thought, well, fair enough, I'll, I'll do some more of that. And it, it also, I, I have found talking to people that a lot of people who play our games, you know, they love reading. They love reading stories. So even if they've got, you know, stories of their own, you know, they, they want to play games set in the Dune universe or in the Honor Harrington universe or whatever it might be, they still like reading other people's stories. So it, it's the idea is it just gives somebody more to read. So you can pick up the book and you can have the rules, but you can also enjoy the photographs and you can read the fiction and you get more out of your money than just a set of rules. And there's that thing as well, I think, where a lot of gamers where sometimes having complete freedom is too overwhelming. So mm. that might be an issue where, you know, the games I've mentioned, Open Combat, Song of Blades and Heroes, where it's almost like, you know, do anything you want. And some people are like, I, I don't know what to do. Um, yeah. Whereas if you're providing a bit of direction, you know, there's this there's this force, there's this force, there's a tension here, here's the universe. You know, you've got a lot of freedom, but this is the this is the, the the gist of it, if you like. Mm. Uh, and then that can maybe get the creative juices flowing in people because they start to think, well, I've got these miniatures, you know, they, they sound a lot like these guys that you're talking about yeah. here. And so it yeah, could, there's, it, a, it could... there's a game called Starbreach that does a very, very good job of that in that Starbreach has a very, very light universe. But in the rules, it describes the different factions that you can choose from. And it's very easy to read those factions and see in the descriptions existing ranges of miniatures that people can expect to already have in their collections and go, oh, yeah, I can see that is going to be this set of miniatures and that's going to be this set of miniatures, even though the language is very careful not to impinge on anybody's intellectual property. It, it, anybody who's got a reasonable miniatures collection from, from any sci-fi setting is going to go, oh, yeah, I, I can see which minis I'm going to use for that faction. Fine. Suddenly, it's and that's quite a good that way. Far future. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, do you think as well that that leads into, um, you know, if we think of the, the the classic pitch battle versus the scenario? So, if you're providing a story world, it might be a lot easier to do that campaign. Whereas, again, you know, I've had games with folk in the past where we have just put a couple of war bands together and we've played and it's been fun. But then you think, well, what now? Um, it's 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 almost like putting the chess away. You know, it's done. Yes. Um, Yes, there is always a case, and that is, in a way, it's not even sort of pitched battle versus scenario. It's it's that sense of participating in an ongoing narrative, even if your game isn't going to have any influence on it. And obviously, everybody loves it when when they do have games that do have influence, um, and everybody starts messing with the algorithm. But uh, but it is nice to you know when you throw down and you're going. Yes, this is a battle of well, Necrons versus Blood Angels, if you want to go 40k. And you know, as, as players of those factions, that those factions have got history. You know, they, they've got a narrative. This, this interaction that you're about to have is part of something bigger. Even though it's not going to influence it, even it's not, not going to have any payback, it still confers to it some quality of significance in what you're doing, rather than just... I roll dice and move toy soldiers, you roll dice and move toy soldiers, and in the end we decide one of us is one, which is very boring. As a rule writer, 
um, how much of your actual writing takes place at the computer? How or how much of the how much of the coming up with stuff? You know, as as you sitting putting words on paper, or how much of that is happening in your everyday life? Ah, it's an interesting process, and different writers have got got different processes. I'm I'm currently trying to make a video series on YouTube. I'm, I'm two episodes in with a third one, which I'll be probably doing early next week. Um, look at, trying to look at the common factors of those processes that I think most designers share. Um, I tend to start the design process with just a notebook, scribbling pictures and diagrams and calculations and noting down ideas. And then that notebook tends to move to the game table where I'll put out either some counters or some miniatures. I'll roll some dice, turn some cards, whatever it might be, to try and get a feel for how my early ideas actually work and feel as an experience. But I won't go too far down that level before I start turning to the laptop and start trying to write it down. And the reason for that is it's a funny thing, but I think every war game player has experienced this, that you can have a really straightforward rule that you can understand. Once you see it on the tabletop, you can understand it immediately. You can grok it. You can apply it. You understand the ins and outs of it. But when you see it written down on the page, it can take two and a half pages to explain the rule, even though in practice it's straightforward. Um, And I think that is really important for the rules writer, because you may think, I've got a really straightforward rule. This is brilliant. This is excellent. But when you start writing it, you have to start asking how easy is it to actually articulate this rule to my players on the page? Because that transfer of the table action into the rule book, you know, it has to be something that players can pick up and read. And as they're reading it, visualize how it takes place on the table. And if a player can't visualize that quite quickly, it can it can really kill the success of a game, and I say that with with personal experience. Now, my Horizon Wars games have have a distinctive mechanic, um, which is rolling a set of twelve sided dice and forming them into groups, with each group having to meet or exceed a particular target. Now, I've just explained that to you, and I'm sure you can visualise it. But it, I mean, I must have gone through a dozen different iterations of how to explain how that works to players. And I thought it was clear in the first book in Horizon Wars, but I had so many queries of people just saying, I can't quite visualise this. I can't quite see how it works. I need help. Please explain it. Um, and and likewise, there's a, there's a thing called the counter test where the other person, like, like your armour save or whatever, you roll dice against the other person's test. And, and that, again, is slightly more complicated. And the number of times I've had to say to people, no, no, I really do mean exactly match it's not match or exceed you know the counter test has to be an exact match of one number against another number and it people struggle to to grok that just from reading it on on the page um, and, and that's a real struggle for rules writers even even when you think something is clear and and well articulated people will still come back and go well did you mean this and you're like no what i meant what it said but but rules writers, rules readers are always, they've always got 
the the game they play in their heads when they're reading a game that they're learning. And when those two things are not the same, it, it leads to collisions. Something I'm curious about, because I'm, I'm somebody who every time I pick up a new rule book, I'm always like, oh, I'm surprised at that. I never thought of that. That's really clever. Um, but are there are there so many, are there only so many game rule variations? And and like, is there is there any point in owning more than a handful of miniature games? Um, well, obviously, I am biased because I think you should always buy new rule books because that's how I make a living. Um, I certainly can't get enough new rule books. I mean, I love love having an excuse to buy a new rule book, um, and and I do like to sit down and feel the game flow off the page in front of me, even if I'm I'm never going to get to play it. And I've got a number of rule books on my shelf that I think it's very unlikely I'll ever play, but I don't regret having them there, and I'm never going to get rid of them because they are they are satisfying to read. Um, is there a, a limit? I mean, at one point I might have said yes. You know, okay, the limit is vast. It is huge. There, there are all kinds of possibilities that are yet to be explored. Um, but surely I would have said it was finite. But increasingly that is not the case because we are we are at the start of a process of moving towards what I refer to as hybrid games, which is where you have a tabletop wargaming experience that is supported by or enhanced by digital assets. Um, and there have been a few attempts down the years to try and do this, and they've all failed pretty miserably, um, even ones that were actually very good games. But even though the current early attempts haven't succeeded, we are definitely going to be there. You know, it might be 10 years, it might be 20 years, I don't know how long it's going to take. But eventually, the idea of augmented reality environments are going to become normalised. And within those, effectively, all bets are off. I mean, the, the opportunities and options for, for randomization brings all of the options that, that current digital games have onto the tabletop. So, I mean, just for example, I'm literally, just before I sat down with you, I've just come away from playing a little bit of a, of a new Skyrim playthrough that I'm enjoying. Skyrim's a great game. But anybody who plays Skyrim will know that the combination of the different skills, skill levels and skill trees, um, they're great in a digital game. But if you try to apply those to a tabletop game, and apply them to, to every character that you had on the table, you would get lost and overwhelmed. There's no way to manage that much information, which is why game designers have to make things quite simple for tabletop games. But when we, we get to the point of having hybrid games where, where there is this digital tabletop hybrid, there'll be absolutely no reason why every miniature in your collection couldn't have its own career path and be evolving and developing with every game that you play. And you can, you'll be able to save its status at various levels. So you'll be able to sit down with somebody who maybe hasn't been playing as long as you, so you reset the status of your army back to the point that they were at, so you're playing at a level playing field. And then you play somebody who's much more veteran, and you can put your army back up to its full state and, and play in that form. And, and all of that will be possible eventually. And, and ex illis tried it, Bastion Games, like 10 years ago, 
and and it failed on a number of levels and it failed twice um they failed once they got bought out and then but the p- customers failed as well um but even though they weren't ready even though people didn't have that level of technology in their lives at that time to feel comfortable with that eventually we're going to be there and and then there is no end to what designers are going to be able to do with tabletop games do you think the pros with something like that outweigh the cons i I mean I, i could argue that we're already a bit overwhelmed with technology in our lives and th- this hobby is kind of one last bastion of analog where you can leave the phones at the door. Um, that is definitely true. And and I think that will certainly be true for a generation of wargamers that might include us. But the next stage in digital technology, which we're already at, which we can see around us now, is the gradual disappearance of visible technology from our lives. So, you know, I, I now drive an electric car, you know, and when I get in my car, it does a lot of stuff for me. You know, my car will, my car has automatic line sensing. Um, I can't, I'm not allowed to take my hands off the wheel. It'll tell me off if I try to do that, but it will adjust my steering if it thinks I'm crossing a line. Um, it has an alarm warning me of a collision. Um, it, it, even if I'm in standing traffic, it warns me when the car ahead of me is pulled away in case I've been distracted. You know, um, so all that kind of stuff is is becoming standardised, uh, and we see the same thing now. That you know, I I I've just made an appointment for for a, another interview uh, tomorrow, and you know, I got the email through. Do I want to accept this appointment? I click yes, and that automatically updates my calendar, automatically updates my Google calendar, my Outlook, Outlook um, sets up a, an alert, an alarm. You know, we're seeing technology start to, to disappear from our, our peripheral vision. Um, and, and, you know, we're not at the point where it's you know literally about to launch, but the, the direction is there. And I think... Maybe not this generation of young people, but but the, their children will just expect things to work. You know, mm-hmm. They they will just expect that when they turn on a device, all their logins will be automatic. That they won't, you know, it'll it'll be biometric logins, or even it'll be a single biometric login at the door. You know, you scan your iris or you scan your finger your fingerprint, and not only does it unlock the front door. But it logs you into every device on in the house. That is the direction that we're going. Um, and as I say, you know, as a game designer, I, I think that's incredibly exciting. Um, and I think it, it means that all the best stuff about miniatures games, all the creative side of things, the social side of things, the you know, creating your terrain, building your table, making your army, all of that will stay moderately analog although i think 3d printing obviously is going to transform how we actually get our hands on miniatures um but all of that will continue to be analog and traditional to an extent i mean again hero forge hero forge are already outsourcing miniatures painting to a computer you know it's not great but it's only going to get better um but but for those of us that want to paint we'll still paint for those of us that still you know want to to make our terrain out of out of polystyrene, uh, 
as opposed to 3D printing it. So I'm, I'm showing Matt some of my polystyrene terrain. Um, rather than 3, 3D printing it, you know, we'll still be able to, and that will still be be relevant and possible. But more and more of of the hobby is going to be digitized until it leaves only the fun stuff for us to do, uh, and the hard work won't be there. Uh, just to give another example, Infinity the Game, great, terrific game, which I love very much. But one of the biggest selling points of Infinity the Game for enthusiasts is their Infinity Army app, which is a digital free army building software that looks fantastic, that is constantly updated with, with new uh, information, new units, FAQs. And it, it is so easy to open up the app and build a 300-point army in 10 minutes based on whatever you've got in your box. You barely need to turn up to a tournament with a written army, even though you do. But even that, you know, you, you write your army on the app, you can export that army and email it to the tournament organizer and job's done. All of that is being exported and people people respond well to it. It's making stuff easier and more fun. Yeah, as long as when Skynet go rogue, we could still sit down and have a nice game of Blood Bowl in the in yeah, the, yeah. In the stores. Yeah. <laughs> well, and to be I mean I I've I, I, I'm old enough that I can I mean I this was in White Dwarf years ago, but uh, back at the was it I can't remember which Gulf War it was. I think it might even have been the first one. Or it might have been the second one. Um, but there was a photo in, in White Dwarf of two soldiers playing Warhammer 40,000 with a whole load of rocks. You know, yeah. they just collected rocks of different colours and written Land Raider on the big rock and go like, that's my Land Raider and Marine on a rock and that's my Marine. And they, you know, played. So, yeah, yeah, when, when the post-apocalypse arrives, we can still play 40K with knuckle bones and rocks. It's fine. <laughs> Um, what are some of the what What are some of your favourite game mechanics you've come come across in your time? Um, well, I, I immediately have to go to straight back to Infinity the game with their automatic reaction order. Um, that's a great mechanic. Are you familiar with it? No, never played it. So it's it's a, in many ways it's a very straightforward system, but it's one of these it's one of these systems that exactly spoke to what I was talking about before. When they wrote it down, people didn't understand. And it wasn't until the Beasts of War guys made a series of videos illustrating the mechanics that people went, oh, I understand. The way it works is to, to achieve something, it's very straightforward. Um, you have to roll equal to or under a target number on a d20. Right? Straightforward. So you work out your target is 14, say. So in order to hit that target, you have to roll 14 or less on a d20. Simple. But then your target gets to react to you, assuming it's a person with a gun, and they get to shoot back. And to shoot back, they also roll a d20, and they are also trying to roll equal to or under a target number that may be the same or different from yours. Let's say it's 11 to shoot back. So I'm looking to roll equal to or under 11 in reaction to your roll equal to or under 14. Now, which one of us succeeds depends on which one of us rolls under our target number, but higher than the other person. So if I roll a 10, I've rolled equal to or under my reaction roll, but you've rolled a 12, you've rolled higher than me, and you've still rolled under your target number, so you win. Mm -hmm. Then they add on an extra little layer of complexity because they have critical hits. So if you need to roll 14 or higher to hit me, I need to roll 11 or higher to hit back. Now, you roll a 13, which is a good roll. 
but I rolled an 11. Now, 11 is less than 13, but it is exactly the number I needed. Therefore, I get a crit, even though it's lower than you, and I beat your head. And it summons up this image of you know two soldiers who are aware of each other across the battlefield. One has the initiative, and they're moving to fire, but the other one is trying to beat them to the punch. And which one gets their shot down first? Um, and generally speaking, the person who's got the initiative, whose turn it is, has the advantage. Not always, but usually they have the advantage. But you can never be certain that you're not going to get critted by your by your opponent. And that provides a really sort of tense, dramatic quality to any dice exchange in Infinity the game that, that I think is its, its greatest feature. It's not a perfect game. I haven't yet read their fourth edition rules, which I'm told have addressed some of the problems. Um, but the, the the third edition wasn't a perfect game, but it, it had, amongst other things, it had that, which the game has always had. It's like the 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 signature mechanic of Infinity, and that's a, a really good one. I do love that mechanic. Um, is there another mechanic? Is there anything that I wish I'd written? I mean, there are other mechanics that I like, but I would never have written. A good example is Jake Thornton's work on Dead Zone, first edition. Now, their third edition has just been announced. I, I keep meaning to reach out to Jake to find out if he was involved in third edition. I don't know. But the feature of Dead Zone is that movement is done on the basis of a grid, quite a large grid. So it's not a case of you count squares like in... in uh, Dungeons and Dragons or something. It's actually I'm moving from this quite large square to this quite large square, and it, so it's quite a large movement, and you've got a lot of freedom as to where you end up positioned in that square. But it makes movement very, very quick, very intuitive. Leaves a lot of freedom for the player to interpret the context of the tabletop, um, and that's a very, very clever and interesting mechanic that that I like. I wouldn't have written it because I try really hard to write games that don't need special stuff like a specially gridded surface. That's that's how I try and design. Um, but nevertheless, I can see the elegance of, of what uh, what he achieved there. Uh, anything else? X-Wing. The, the, the way X-Wing uses their dials to dictate who gets to go when and what they what maneuver they're going to do, I think that is super clever as well. That's, again, you know, it requires a special thing. It requires peripheral items, which I would never write into a game. But when when a company's got as much money as they have, you can you can afford to throw money at solving a problem. Um, and and some really interesting solutions have come out from that. Uh, Blood Red Skies and their way of indicating advantage and disadvantage uh, using a custom base is another example. It's clever, but it requires the company to throw money at the problem. As a rules writer, do you have a favourite mechanic of your own or is that like trying to choose a, a favourite kid? Um, well, I mean, I am I am really, really pleased with that core Horizon Wars mechanic that I mentioned before, that roll D12s, roll the counter test. Um, it, it's a mechanic that I really like and I'm very pleased with and, and I think it really suits the Horizon Wars game. Uh, that said, I am now starting to move away for various reasons. I'm writing some games now that do not use that mechanic. And it's a bit of a relief in many ways. It's really nice to go back to brass tacks, 
to try and work out something new and interesting and exciting. Do you ever come across uh, any mechanics that you feel are a bit overused? Like you pick up a new game and you look at it and you think, not this again. Like, <laughs> is that a thing? Yeah. 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 D6s. Um, You're not a D6 yeah, it, fan? Or? Well, it's not that I'm not a D6 fan, but statistically speaking, the D6 is incredibly restrictive. There's very little you can do with it. So classic example, be familiar to most of your, your listeners, the 40K approach. D6 to hit, D6 to wound, D6 to save. You know, that essentially, so let's say, you know, four plus to, to wound, four plus to hit, four plus to wound. Okay, that's that's a one in four chance. You can't do a one in four chance on a D6. So to do a D6, you've got to roll the dice twice if you want a 25% outcome. Whereas a 25% outcome is a piece of cake on a D20 or a D100 or even a D8 can do a 25% outcome, but you can't do it on a D6. You've got to roll the dice twice. Um, And then the other thing in that is it's a repetitive process. So you've got exactly the same mechanic to hit, to wound, to save. There's no real distinction in the experience. So you get that familiar experience. You know, somebody leans over the table, they drop a handful of dice on the table, they pick out all the ones that didn't hit, they pick them up again, they roll them again, they pick out all the ones that didn't wound, their opponent picks them up, rolls them again, pick out all the ones that didn't save. That's how many wins you got. Oh, really? Yeah. That and 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 I see that mechanic applied a lot in people who are looking to write their own games, whose only experience of games and I, I put myself in this situation like twenty years ago. Uh, maybe 25, um, that your only experience of writing, of playing games revolves around that mechanic. And so that's the mechanic that you try and write a game for because in your head, that's how a war game works. There must be a very delicate balance between uh, coming up with something fresh and unique and exciting versus not reinventing the wheel because presumably there are a lot of things in games that it's like, well, you might as well just have this or that. Um Movement, is that a good example of that, you know? Yeah, well, do you know, it's, it's the, funny. The range of movement. Yes, and, and movement, funnily enough, that's going to be a large part of my next game design tutor video is, is going to be looking at what I call the peripheral core of game design. So the peripheral core is stuff that you can't, you can't have a war game without it, but there's not a lot you can actually do to change it. You know? And movement is the classic example of, well, you know, you've got to move a miniature from A to B. What are your options? Either everybody has the same movement range or everybody has a different movement range that becomes a stat or you have a movement range that varies depending on the size of your base. Or, but at the end of the day, miniature X can move Y inches. And there's not a lot you can do that to make that more interesting. I mean, there is, you know, there's stuff you can have them move quickly to give up the ability to shoot, and you can have them move slowly to gain some advantage in concealment. But at the end of the day, you're still just moving a piece of plastic or metal from point A to point B, uh, and there's not a lot that can be done. That said, there are always people coming up with interesting ideas. I mentioned Jake and, and Dead Zone, good example, you know, interesting way of doing it. Um, there's another game which I've not played yet. I've not even bought the rules for yet, but one of my patrons brought it to my attention, which is called Rogue Planet. 
And Rogue Planet is play. It's a sci-fi game. Yeah, I've got I've got the book. Yeah, Brent's baby. Is that That's right? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of Brent's. And uh, and it's played on a very small space. And basically, any miniature when it moves can move as far as you like. There, mm-hmm. there is no restriction on movement. I think you have to end in cover. That's the only requirement because the idea being that you don't stand in the open, that any activation involves what happens in the period between moving between this piece of cover and that piece of cover. And the further you move, the more might happen, but ultimately you can move as far as you like. Now, I think that is a a really good example of somebody looking at how it's always been done and saying, why do we have to do it that way? Is, mm-hmm. Isn't there a more interesting, more simple way to do it that does away with tape measures, measuring sticks, even even the need for a movement stack? All gone with with one simple idea for a rule. Um, brilliant, a brilliant idea. Yeah, I, I think that's. A, I say I haven't played it yet, haven't bought it yet, but it's a, a, a really good example of somebody going into the peripheral core and doing something different and imaginative. But generally speaking. All those things that sort of cluster around that, that, there's only so much you can do. Going to put you in a couple of scenarios now. Um, the one I'll start with. So, um, your favourite, one of your favourite game creators, one of your favourite games, they come to you and say, Roby, uh, take our game and turn it into a solo game. So, obviously, it isn't a solo game already. Um, what sort of things are you thinking about when you're, when you're tasked with that? challenge so what sort of solo game do they want to have because you can have a solo game where it essentially recreates the pvp experience but the other side is controlled by a decision tree so it'll still it would be exactly like playing against another player a slightly dumb other player, but another player. Or you can have a solo game that uses the PvP mechanics but does something different with it. Um, so, for example, most miniature war games are symmetric games. In principle, both players have the same points or resources or whatever to draw upon, so generally speaking, the forces are about the same size. But in a solo game, you have the opportunity to go asymmetric. Um, And it can go either way, uh, depending on what kind of a game you want to have. But you can have a a solo game where, you know, an elite force is taking on a much, much larger force, for example. Um, Then it makes more sense for a much larger force to behave in a more mechanistic decision tree style to an intuitive elite force. So it taps into the... the, um, What's the word? The theme of the game. Um, Alternatively, you could have some kind of solo game where the enemy isn't even present. I mean, if you're doing a a sci-fi solo game, you could have a solo game where the enemy is is like um, uh, I can't remember what he's called. What's the what's the the game is the game the role play game is paranoia. Is it Big Brother? It's not Big Brother. It's Big something. Big Eye, Brother Eye. It's Brother Eye in uh, in Paranoia, which is a role play game, and uh, in that it's just it, it's a big disembodied computer voice, and actually it acts as the game master, so it's not your enemy. But you could easily have a solo miniatures game, sci-fi miniatures game, where the enemy 
is an artificial intelligence that has invested itself in your environment. So at every corner, you don't know when a building may come to life and start shooting at you or burst into flames to attack you or collapse or something may shoot up from, from the subway. So you don't have a visible enemy. Your job as, as the solo game is, is just to survive, get from point A to point B and not get killed by the artificial intelligence. So that's the kind of question I would be asking is, is what experience do you want your players to have from a solo game? How narrative do you want it to be? How close do you just want it to be to the PvP experience? And most people, when they start thinking about a solo game, are trying to replicate the PvP experience, but with one person. And although you can do it, I think that ignores a lot of the potential of solo wargaming. Um, I think solo wargaming has has a lot of narrative exploitability that... that I mean, talking about stuff that hasn't been done in, in wargaming yet, solo wargaming has a lot of room to exploit. And I say solo, I'd love to see more people at clubs playing co-op wargaming. That would mm. be something I would love to see, is more people sitting down at a table to play together and getting all of that social stuff that we get out of wargaming, but not actually fighting each other, but fighting together against a common foe of some sort. Yeah, it's an interesting point on like who you're fighting because um, you're talking about opponents. That it's probable that um, the game, you know, it's it's not the opponents aren't going to be as clever as an actual human. So if you're fighting zombies or gene stealers, the sort of things that are just going to come at you, then it's it's probably easier to buy into that as a story. If your opponents are supposed to be highly trained soldiers and they're just distractedly turning to the the nearest opponent, it's it's not super realistic, is it? So it could pull you out of it. Hmm. But, there, I mean, there are things you can do with it. And there are, I mean, uh, when I've written solo games, as I say, I, I try to keep the the stuff that players need uh, as straightforward as possible, stuff that you can find anywhere. So I tend to, currently, the solo games that I've written are built around using a deck of playing cards, which gives you a number which tells you which enemy is going to activate, and then a suit which tells you what they're going to do, which is quite straightforward, but it is quite simplistic. There are other games that have got more money to throw at this kind of thing that can actually create a deck of cards with each card having its own instructions on for who is going to do what under what circumstances. So you can have a different decision tree on every single card that creates a more intelligent response in your enemy. It's intelligent and unpredictable at the same time, which which is the ultimate goal of solo play. And and having money to throw at creating a bespoke set of, of playing cards is, at the moment, the analogue solution to the problem. But, of course, we talked before about hybrid games. I mean, the ultimate solution to, to a hybrid solo game has already been done by Fantasy Flight Games in their XCOM board game and in the solo version of Imperial Assault where you actually have a, an artificial intelligence program that obviously can be far more sophisticated and nuanced than the flip of a card, and also more fun, because it can add music and graphics and, and the sense of actually a, an intelligence making decisions behind the screen, even when it's all done by algorithm. In your experience of the solo games you've encountered, are these small-scale individual miniature skirmishes? Could, could it be done on a mass fantasy rank-and-flank game like Warhammer Fantasy Battles? Could that be done in a solo manner? Well, yeah, no, it definitely could. 
it definitely could. And <laughs> this is one of these cases where I have to measure the difference between what I like doing as a war gamer and what I nevertheless know other people enjoy doing. Um, one of the drawbacks of, of doing a mass fantasy battle game in a solo system um, is that, of course, that you have to move both armies. And that's quite time consuming, which I would personally not find fun. But on the other hand, people do play 40k Apocalypse. So there are clearly people out there who are prepared to spend a lot of time moving a lot of units for not a lot of purpose. Um, so with that in mind, you could definitely do it if somebody were minded. And in fact, the game I mentioned before, Ex Illis, had all the capacity to do that um, because they had a digital resolution system. So there would have been absolutely no reason why you couldn't have had two armies set them up on either side of the table and then the, the resolution system that was designed to deal with PvP would just create decisions for, for the opposing side to do. Yeah, it would be... Yeah, the, the technology already exists to do it, uh, and it wouldn't be any more difficult than doing a skirmish game. The only reason I predominantly write skirmish-type games is that I don't have the patience to move that many models. Yeah, or and setting up and tidying away yeah. yourself as well. Yeah. <laughs> Double the time. Quite. Um, another wee scenario for you. Somebody, somebody commissions you to, to write a game for them, and, and in the brief they say, look, we want this to be tiny. Um, maybe two two miniatures, tiny playing space. Can that be done? Yes, definitely. In fact, I would direct you to... So I, I started the game design shoot. I said there were two episodes. There are, but there is actually a sort of a pre-episode, which I really ought to go and add to the playlist now I think about it, um, where I sat down with a chap called Tony Graham. And Tony's one of my patrons. He's not a game designer. He's not involved in the industry in any way. But Tony was looking forward to going, he's an American, he was looking forward to going and doing a bit of a national tour in his RV, as is something of a, a, an American obsession. And he was really keen to be able to keep miniatures wargaming while he was out there, but he only had these tiny tables that you get in an RV to play on. So he was trying to write a skirmish game that you could play on a piece of A4 paper. And so he and I sat down and he let me record it, as we brainstormed our way through what a sci-fi skirmish game could look like played on a piece of paper. And that is exactly what you asked. Was it possible? Yeah, not only possible, but I mean, I'm not writing it. I just sort of helped him him through it, but I'm really looking forward to seeing what he comes up with because it, it sounds really interesting. Yeah, and then I, again, you know, we talked about the technology side of things, but just thinking off the cuff, you know, you might have an iPad which might create a dungeon tile playing space for you. And you you maybe move your miniature up to the door, and when you get to that door, you're presented then with a random... Um, that already exists. That already... Right? You know, people people are so already getting... They're, they're, <laughs> they're getting massive flat-screen TVs fitted in coffee tables facing upwards um, with, with touch-sensitive LCD screens that, that they do exactly that. And it, you can... Um, have random dungeon generators so that you or, or you can have a GM who creates a dungeon in advance and uploads it but as you move the miniatures it senses where the miniatures are and it just opens each door and shows you each room as you get to it it's, it's already exists people are playing it 
Imagine uh, explaining that to the wife when that gets delivered. Like we've got a new, <laughs> got a new coffee table, um, but you're not you're not allowed to put coffee on it. Well, there's a there's a company not far from me in Evesham called Geek and Son, and and that's all they do is is make bespoke gaming tables. Um, mm. And and you know they've been all around the world displaying their tables and they sell them all all over the world. They're all all bespoke, all handmade. And one of the things they do is they, they make tables to fit these flat screens in. So, you know, there are people out there with with the kind of money to drop on that stuff right now, playing in our hobby. We've not uh, talked about Games Workshop. And uh, in your own podcast, I think you refer to them as the elephant in the room. But we, we could never ignore them for too long. Um, yeah, the Lenten monolith. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wanted to ask your opinion on this. So, like, to myself, uh Games Workshop seemed like all there was out there. I'm talking back in the mid-90s when I was a kid. Um, I got White Dwarf, and I I didn't know of any other games out there. Um, Does the company actually have a bigger hold on the industry now, even though there are loads of different options on the market now? Or has it gone the other way, do you think? I think proportionally in the market, it's got a smaller hold than it did back in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, the thing is, back then, without the internet to, to guide us and make us feel like part of this international community of wargamers, there were huge communities. I mean, things look like in the States, you've got Historicon, which is a massive wargaming event. You know, thousands of people come every year for, you know, I think it's, is it four days, Historicon, something like that? And and it's huge. And you will not see a single Games Workshop miniature in the entire place because it's absolutely dedicated to historical wargaming. Um, and the historical wargaming community has w- was vastly more dominant, particularly in the United States, um, than, than the fantasy wargaming world was. Um, and it was only Games Workshop that really sort of brought wargaming into the mainstream in the 80s and 90s that that grew the market and, and it's i mean it's a with 2020 hindsight it was a brilliant marketing strategy it's hard to know how intentional it was um whether whether brian ansell really knew what he was doing is, a, is another question but they based they created a market from nothing it's not like they were trying to get historical wargamers to come and play fantasy wargames. They, they saw that as a hard sell. So they created fantasy wargaming as a completely new market. They just invented it from whole cloth and drew in people like you and me that went, woo, yeah, fantastic. And, and you know, I, I found the appeal of fantasy wargaming irresistible. But I found the idea of historical wargaming incredibly dull. I had no interest. If somebody had said, "Oh, you like wargaming? Come and play some. Come and come and play the Battle of Hastings with me, or come and play this section of Waterloo with me," I'd go, "No, that's boring. I want orcs and elves and magic and skeletons and space marines with massive explosions and thunderhawks swooping across the table." Even though they didn't exist as miniatures, that didn't mean it wasn't in my imagination. Um, so that's that's what I wanted, and Games Workshop created that desire from nowhere. And so now, where we are in the 2020s, um, 
the current market for fantasy sci-fiction wargaming is much, much bigger than it was. And Games Workshop's percentage grasp of that is considerably smaller than it was because originally they were the market. They were basically it. Um, So, yeah, their proportional grasp is, is smaller. Not a lot smaller, but smaller. But it's a far, far bigger market. And it's a market that, that Games Workshop essentially invented from whole cloth. Do you play uh, do you play any Games Workshop games these days? Uh, uh I don't. I would do you know, I would have said if I would if I talked to you when I was supposed to talk to you the first time, I would have gone, Oh yeah, I'm looking forward to trying the new kill team. Um, I went to a local club the other day um, and I, I was going there to run a demo game of, of Zero Dark, which I did. It was great. I had a really good time. But every other table in the club was a Games Workshop game. And I arrived after everybody else got started. They'd already started their games. They'd set the tables. They were getting prepped. I started. I got my stuff out. I set up the game. I got the rules out, got the miniatures out laid everything out, reminded myself of, of the scenario, caught the guy I was going to do a demo for. We sat down, we played through the demo, had a fantastic time. He really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Um, finished, shook his hand, bit him a good evening, reset the table, turned around. Most of the other games were on turn two. Mm-hmm. And every other game was a 40K game. Sorry, it was a, it was a Games Workshop game. So there was uh, there was two four games of forty k one of Age of Sigma one of Kill Team one of Aeronautica Imperialis, uh, I think that was it. There might have been a more forty k, I forget. Um, and it, none of them looked that fun. That you know the the people looked like they were having fun because they were sat down with their friends and and they were joshing one another and having a good time and they were being social and, and enjoying themselves. But the games themselves did, didn't look fun. Even Kill Team, which I, I was really interested to see Kill Team happening. I, I went over and I watched the play and I went, I'm, I'm really not getting any sense of engagement with what I'm seeing on the tabletop. It's just plastic encounters. This feels very dull. Whereas the game that I, I... Okay, I know I was playing my own game, so I'm to my own horn here, but, you know, the game that we just played felt like it had purpose, felt like it had ups and downs and swings, and, and, and he thought he was there, and then suddenly this thing happened and he wasn't there, and now his hero that he thought was going to take the mission was down, and could he rescue him and get off, or did he have to just flee for the exit and, and hope for the best and leave his, his guy behind? And, you know, it, it had a sense of drama to it that I just didn't really see i think aeronautica imperialis came came closest to having that sense of drama but and i don't think i gave that game a a fair well i watched it for a while but it was a four-player game and they had two enormous fleets of aircraft so i think it was moving really slowly because they weren't super okay with the game and they did have a lot of miniatures um so perhaps it, it didn't get its fairest show on the table but but everything else i was looking at going Nothing here really, really appeals. I mean, even Necromunda, and I've got a Necromunda gang half painted on my my desk in fact too, if you count the Gene Steelers. Um, but um, but I, I don't feel any particular compulsion 
to play 40k. I would rather go and play Starbreach if I was going to put those guys on the table. Yeah, and I mean, we've talked about the, the miniature agnostic systems out there. Like, if you love the universes that Games Workshop have created, you, you don't even need to use the rules, do you? Like, you exactly. Just, there's loads of games exactly. out there you could use. The, the, the one, and I've talked about this on my podcast recently, the one quality that Games Workshop has that puts it ahead of every other game in the market is ubiquity. You know, it's the fact that I went to that club and everybody there was playing a Games Workshop game, and most of them were playing 40K. You know, it's the ability to know, if I put in the hours and the time and the money and the sweat and the tears I need to to paint this 1,500, 2,000-point Necron Army, Tau Army, Eldar Army, whatever it might be, I don't know what the modern names are. Um, you know, I paint this army, I know I can go to my local club and play somebody with it. On the other hand, if I put, okay, admittedly a lot less time and effort into building and painting this 10-person infinity army, there's no guarantee that I'm going to be able to use that army because I don't know if anybody else at my club plays infinity, and if they do play an infinity, I don't know if they want to play right now that they're playing something else. So that that's the one thing that Games Workshop has in game design. And I don't want to down-talk you know, the quality of their setting or the quality of their miniatures or their customer service or their community engagement, all of which are top-notch. But in terms of the quality of their game design, you know, Kill Team represented a massive step forward for Games Workshop in design terms. It was an attempt to create something legitimately innovative. But all they really seem to have done is ripped off some of the best other skirmish games out there and done nothing, 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 let alone nothing new. They haven't even done it as well as the people they ripped off, which is very disappointing. Yeah, and I suppose, um, like you're saying as well, it, it, it might be a lifestyle thing for people. Like if I was, um, if I had a chaotic schedule that was, you know, one day was never the same as another one, I could go online and get a game of 40k probably any night of the week. But if I'm exactly. trying to, if I'm suddenly like, anyone want to play Rogue Planet? Um, yeah. I feel like, well, I've never heard of that. So Yeah, um, <laughs> Yeah, so... Um, we're kicking on for an hour, Roby, so I'm going to let you go. Uh, I've really enjoyed it, so I want to get you back on for, for more of this good stuff. Um, we've talked about your podcast, so if the listener wants to check it out, and they definitely should, because you you've got, you have got bring us up to date with some news and analysis, but I, I really like your deep dives into the game mechanics and stuff, which we've had a, a small hint of in this episode. So mm. where might they uh, go about finding your show? I, I am... Well, strictly, my show is on uh, Podbean. So if you go to precinctomega.podbean.com, you'll find my podcast. Where might they uh, take a look at your games as well? Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of ubiquitous social media-wise. So my games are sold through Wargame Vault, which is wargamevault.com, and you can just search for Precinct Omega there, and it'll take you to my page. You can link to that as well through my website, which is precinctomega.co.uk. Um, you can also find me on all the usual social media places as Precinct Omega. So I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Pinterest, I'm on Reddit. Um, so yeah, it's it's all out there. But if you want to have a look at the games, that the place is is WargameVault.com. That is the place to find my games, as well as loads of other 
miniatures agnostic games. If you don't fancy a precinct to make a game, uh, you think they're a little bit pricey, check out Rogue Planet, check out Planet 28, uh, check out what other other good sci-fi skirmish games on there. If you like solo games, there's a game called Hardwired, which is a solo cyberpunk game, which is really cool. Uh, 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 oh, uh, Star um, Stargrave? Yes, Stargrave is available through Wargame Vault if, if you like that rather than going to Osprey. Um, Five Parsecs from Home, now from Modiphius Entertainment. That is also on Wargame Vault, as well as all of Ivan Sorensen's other stuff, which is from Nordic Weasel. So yeah, check out Precinct Omega, please, but but don't, don't stop yourself there. It is a treasure trove of excellent content. Indeed. Uh, like I say, yeah, all links in the show notes at bedroombattlefields.com slash podcast. Roby, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. What's for tea tonight? It's kicking on for five now. So. Uh, fish fingers and chips tonight. I've got to go and make Good. it now. Good. A council tea. I love that. <laughs> um, I think I'm on the tuna pasta, but it's chickpea pasta, which is a little bit different. Tastes the same, though. Tastes the Ch- same. But yeah, very nice. Feel. Uh, well, enjoy your, enjoy your fish fingers. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up again sometime soon. That would be great. Thanks, Matt.